I'm Kane Jackson, and this is Chasing Financial Equality, a show where we ask what's getting in the way of the equal opportunities that so many people have fought for. We speak to leading thinkers and a few familiar names and address the obstacles of yesterday that are standing in the way of progressive social policy today, all in pursuit of just one big question. What's the point of fixing climate for the future if only a few of us can afford to live there? Today I'm joined by a hard-hitting journalist who writes about tech, economics, and humans. Joan Westenberg is an outspoken, no-punches-pulled kind of person who has a habit of sticking the boot into the real problem, which is, quite often, the overconfident white man in the room. She said things that include, I don't know much about dudes who just turned 30, but I know they fucking love writing lists of all the things they learned before they turned 30. Just last week, Joan said, grant me the confidence of a dude who hasn't read a book arguing about that book with the author of that book. And a few days ago, she went viral for saying, I'm burned out on diversity and inclusion panels where we all pretend that the answer to VCs not funding women isn't VCs just fucking funding women. I'm burned out on selling the same tired marketplaces and 10 minute grocery delivery bullshit over and over again to warn down working consumers who see through the smoke and mirrors. Joan says it like it is and so often gets it right. And for that reason, she's one of my favorite people. Joan, hello and welcome to Chasing Financial Equality. Mate, it is good to be here. It's good to be semi face to face. You know, we talk a bunch <laughs> online back and forth, you know me, but it's good to sit down and really have a conversation. I want to start with a small question. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? I mean, the easy answer here and the answer that I think a lot of left-wing journalists and writers and so on are going are gonna to point to is capitalism. Capitalism is wrong with the world. But I want to go a little bit more nuanced at that. Um, it's the easy answer because it's kind of a catch-all. You know, if you look at all the problems, you can hand wave and say capitalism is wrong with everything. But I think it goes a bit deeper than that. I think what we're talking about here is a particular delusion of capitalism that is pervasive and incredibly damaging. And that's the delusion that we have the potential for infinite growth. You know, that is, that is this thing that we, be we believe about every company, every industry, every ecosystem, no matter what profit Apple goes and posts every quarter, we say, well, how much are they going to grow from here? Can they grow? Like, can they sell more iPhones? They should sell more iPhones. They missed their reports by this much. They missed their estimates by this much because they should have sold more iPads. And we approach capitalism with the idea that there will always be more growth to be had. And in that, we kind of ignore the idea that this world is based on finite resources. The most obvious of those resources is humanity. Humanity is a finite resource. There's only so many of us. There's only so much we're capable of. Time is a finite resource. We all get the same amount of it. The environment is a finite resource. The amount of money people can actually make from selling any product is a finite resource. And so infinite growth is not possible. It's not something that any company can achieve with any product in any market. And so I think if you really take a step back and look at the state of the world, so many of the problems that we have come from this notion that everything is going to be okay because there will always be more growth somewhere. And I think that's wrong. Do you think that expectation of infinite growth comes from any segment of society more than another, or do we all expect that infinite growth is possible? I think we all do because it's kind of how we've been raised. The idea that, that things are running out is a relatively new one. It's really only been for the last 100 years that we've started to be aware 
that everything is running out. And we started to be aware of that because resources are drying up. The climate is starting to run into serious trouble. We are starting to to really run out of room for growth. Um, part of this is definitely that the industrial age accelerated so much that we started to use up so many more of our resources. But I think it is a new concept. And so we've all just come from this idea that the earth will provide, that things will be there. And we're starting to recognize that that's not necessarily true, but it is a relatively new thing. People talk about capitalism as being the best of a bad bunch of systems. And you and I have mm. spoken about how we are actually mm. capitalists at heart. However, mm. there probably has to be some limitations on it. If we have a look at those limitations, a lot of the time we hear rhetoric around this collective shout that we have to fix things. We have to change mm. the way society operates. We have to change capitalism. Do you think that begs a larger question of a, an individual asking themselves what they want and how much is enough for them? And should they curb mm. their expectations before they expect other people to? Who does this change come from if we're going mm. to see it? I think there's a real danger here of falling into the trap of believing that we need individualistic solutions to systemic problems. Ultimately, and I'm going to use climate change as an example here again, ultimately, it's a good thing for me to go and recycle, you know, to, to really look at, at the waste that I'm creating and to make ethical choices about how I'm helping to preserve the planet. Like, that's important for me to do. And it is important for me to take responsibility and stewardship for the world around me. But I also have to recognize that those actions are a tiny, tiny, tiny drop in the ocean of shit that is the governments and major corporations who are doing most of the contributions to the climate being fucked. And so yeah, we can absolutely. say that, yeah, there, there are individual responsibilities and, and I have a, a certain, you know, leaning towards saying that we should take individual responsibility, but at the end of the day, no matter how much responsibility you take or I take or my partner takes, we are actually not going to be able to move the needle without the major corporations the major organizations making that change as well. So I think we have to be careful not to fall into that individualistic trap. So that speaks to this necessity for really significant systems change. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, it can be instigated by individuals calling for that systemic change, but it's not going to happen without a systemic change. You know, ultimately, if we don't change the environment that we are working in, if we don't change the nature of the capitalistic system that we're, that we're living in, nothing really is going to change in the long term. It's interesting, the comparison between, I guess, a climate emergency and an economic emergency, which some people, myself have included, have, have labelled almost as a finance industry emergency, because largely the groups within our society that capitalism most benefits are also the people that are in charge of our finance industry. But if we have a look at capitalism as a whole, do you think it benefits all people equally? We say it's the best of a, whole, of a bad bunch of systems. Is it a problem because it benefits some people more than others? And In any system, there is always going to be a level of inequality, which I think is, is going to naturally appear as a result of the different efforts people put into their work, what they want, and the different goals and value systems that people have. So that's my wishy-washy beginning to this answer. But I do think that because we're looking at systemic problems, there are systemic inequalities that are incredibly clear and that are growing. Now, a part of this comes down to wealth distribution, a part of it comes down to resource distribution. 
But I think that if you look at the current world that we live in, you can't say that some people are not more successful than others purely based on where and how and to whom they were born. And so I think if we, if we say, yes, we're in a, a globally capitalist system, which I think we can all very much agree on, somebody who is born to a long line of successful industrialists is going to have much more advantage than somebody who is born to uh, a couple of school teachers. And I think what we're really talking about here is a system that does not give everyone the same starting point. If it gives some others advantages that, that many don't get, if those advantages are the things that equip or arm people to affect change, if they have different motivations because of their different experiences within a system, who are we going to see the change within that system come from? If certain people have more money, they get the, the benefits of capitalism against those that don't have the money. But it's those mm. who don't have the money that most need to see that systems change. It's also those people that have the most motivation to go out and pursue it. Do you think we have to address issues of funding these people? And if that's the case, how can we expect people who benefit from capitalism to reach into their pocket and invest in solutions that might address some of the problems that don't affect them? I don't think we can expect the people who benefit from capitalism to make active choices to help those who are not benefiting. And I say that because for however many decades, we keep going, ah, but the billionaires are philanthropists and the, and the rich are going to help the poor. And they fucking don't. We don't see that bleeding through. We don't see it working at all. You know, the truth is that trickle down economics is an utter myth. When the rich get richer, the poor don't actually improve their lives at all. The poor continue to stagnate and the wealth continues to be concentrated. And so I think what has to happen is that we've got to stop believing in this fairy tale that if you give somebody enough money, they're going to become a better person and start to help people. And we have to begin essentially democratically regulating these people and ensuring that they are doing what has to be done. And if they won't do what right, has so to be done, we've got to tax them. And as much as I hate to say it, we live in a shared society and that's, that society is supported by taxes and if people have an inordinate amount of resources and are not doing their part to help the rest of society, then they should be fucking taxed. So a larger portion of society has placed their faith in this notion of the startup, this notion of the startup as being this place where really innovative ideas can originate from seed and propagate out and change the world. And mm. we've got VCs, you know, venture capitalists that mm. are instrumental in the startup space. And they tell us on all of their websites at every convention that they're investing in visionary founders with visions of changing the world. Do you think that's true? I think it's mostly marketing drivel. If you look at the vast majority of the funding that is out there, that funding is going to straight white men who are building the same products over and over again. One of the, the stats that was just released the other day showed that you know, less than 1% of the funding in the last quarter in the US went to black founders, disproportionate to all other funding. And that's years on from the promises that were made by everyone from the SoftBank to Andres and Horowitz in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Like People promised that they were going to start funding black founders more. And they haven't. In fact, that funding has declined. The idea that we're funding innovative ideas is pure fantasy going on the data alone, because to say that we are funding innovative ideas and only 
funding white people is to say that only white men are coming up with innovative ideas. And I just find that to be rather ludicrous. You know, Airtree announced yesterday a, a $9 million seed round for a company founded by a, a dude who had a $1.6 billion exit a few years ago. Um, and I asked the question, the dude didn't have a spare seed round of his own after a $1.6 billion exit. Like, why is he getting more venture capital funding when other founders who have innovative, challenging ideas are not? And that, and so that if, does not come if, down to anything beyond marketing dribble. If we're funding wealthy white men to mm. build companies, who do we think those companies are mostly going to benefit? It's just going to continue concentrating wealth at the top. It's going to keep on providing wealth to that 1%. Because if you trace the money back from any major fund, eventually you reach the same people, you reach the same groups, the same demographics. All of that just continues to compound. I'm just thinking if banks started loaning money to men, but not women, the government would likely step in with stronger regulations, but venture capital discriminates that way, that the data is clear. What do you think happens if we get more equality and diversity in the startup founders that we fund and invest in? Ideally, I think we'll be building tech products that aren't tone deaf and that actually listen to the humanity that is going to be using those products. And hopefully we'll get projects and ideas that contribute to the betterment of our society instead of the destruction of our society. You know, I'm thinking about AI in particular at the moment. You know, we, we need AI that is built by a diverse range of voices and ideas, because if we don't, we'll come up with homogenous systems that perpetuate existing biases. Right. And I mean, I guess some people could argue that we're still using systems that are no longer fit for purpose. And if we build future uh, systems with those same biases, they're going to be increasingly less fit for purpose and further alienate people within our society that we need to bring into the conversation more than we uh, exclude them. 100%. You know, I think about the tech demo from a few years ago of a AI powered hand sanitizer dispenser that was built to recognize hands that were passed under a sensor and it was only built by white people and so only recognized white hands and i don't think we've actually made enough changes to the way that we build technology in order to answer that kind of problem you know i think we're still building with the same biases even now so obviously people are starting to talk more and more about the problems with venture capital as a model mm -hmm. as being reflective of broader problems in mm -hmm. our economic systems that perpetuate these inequalities yeah. and massive wealth disparities impact investors they promise to invest in impactful businesses that change the world do they, or are they just dressing up in a different costume? I think it comes down to that word impact, which covers all manner of sins. How do you estimate and measure impact? What is impact? What does it actually mean? And what are you actually doing? I think that we need to be very careful about how we throw money at problems. And I think we need to question whether impact investors are doing more harm than good in some of the places that they put that funding. I do think that we can't expect good causes to be invested in purely because they're good causes. I think that a lot of things that are good can still be profitable and should still be profitable because otherwise we're going to wind up losing a lot of money in a lot of different areas. 
but I think we should be separating those two things out. So I think putting money into something to have an impact and to change the world and to make things better is great, but I'm not sure we should call that investing because I'm not sure we should be looking to get a financial return out of it. I think if we're looking at investing, we should be talking about commercial companies. And if we're looking about at funding, we should be talking about common goods and things that are going to be helpful for the world. I think the uh, conversation around that word investing, as well as the word impact, what are they, mm. what do they both mean and when should we be using them and, and mm. interchanging them? I think if you have a look at the word impact from an investment perspective, the word investment implies um, the seeking of a return and therefore a profitable venture. If we look at uh, impact through the eyes of say a philanthropist or a not-for-profit organization they're going to look at impact really differently or at least be open to looking at impact more broadly than someone who needs to make a financial return out of it so mm. perhaps there's an opportunity for us to have a conversation and say well, hang on a minute, we've got philanthropic ventures, we've got not-for-profits all around the world that all day, every day, throw hundreds of millions of dollars at problems, not expecting a return and only expecting impact. Maybe it's time we had a look at these these ventures, these not-for-profits backing some of the, I guess, ventures that the VCs look at and say, well, look, it might be profitable, but it's just not really what we're looking at. Do you think there's an opportunity to couple some of those, what are for-profit but for massive impact ventures that the VCs look at and say, well, I can't float that, I can't flip that. This is more for the impact than it is for the profit. But if we change who we're having that conversation with, perhaps there's an opportunity to ask, should we be allowing some of our largest not-for-profits to become investors in these social impact companies? Short answer, yes. A long answer, it really depends on the individual context and companies. One of the problems that we're running into is that for government they want to have sweeping regulations that capture a whole field of something because it's easier to, to build laws and regulations around that. But in practice, these things are so much more complicated and complex. I think a part of this comes down to the fragmentation that we have in the financial sector and the government sector and in the tech sector. You know, we have competing incentives and competing goals that just are not aligning. So I think if we can try to get something together where we are working on the same page, surely that's going to be helpful. You know, whether that is VCs working more closely with nonprofits and NGOs, whether that's government working more closely with industry, I just think that we need to find a way to avoid that fragmentation and bring people together with a shared goal. And I don't know what that goal is, I don't know how that looks, but I know that the current system isn't working. I think it's interesting a lot of the significant investors in any country are also the sig significant philanthropists. And I, I don't think there's mm. any coincidence in the fact that they invest where they invest and they donate where they donate. And there's not a lot of crossover between those things. And that's limiting in its, in its own right. But coming back to, you acknowledged before that we can't really expect venture capital firms or investors to invest in the ventures that are going to drive significant systems change. I don't think there's many people out there having that, that conversation, acknowledging that out in the open and saying, we need to change our expectation of venture capital investors. We can't expect them to be saviors on, on white horses because they're not, they're wealthy white dudes. I think if we accept that as the case, it changes the narrative. There's a lot of discontent 
within society, especially in the startup space and the tech space about VCs not backing things that could potentially change the world. Do we just need to park that to the side and say, these guys are fucked. They're going to do their own thing. Let's stop asking them for money and just stop wasting time and have a conversation about how we amass funds to fund the things that could actually change the world for people that don't get into the rooms with the VCs. I think we have to stop falling for the cons that venture capital funds exist to improve the world and to change the world and to make society better. That is what they market themselves as. That's what Mark Andreessen is marketing. He's marketing a movement led by himself and other tech crusaders to change the world and put a dent in the universe. But that's absolutely at odds with the goal of a venture capital fund, which is to provide returns for their LPs. Like the idea that a fund is out there to do good in the world as its end goal is completely delusional. Ultimately, a fund has to keep on raising their funds and those funds are going to come from investors who want to see that there are returns on those funds. And what that really comes down to is that they're going to keep on taking bets on the things that, yes, may have the potential to change the world, but more importantly, have the potential to create a return for their partners, for their investors, that whole bunch of people want to get paid. Like they are looking for a payday. That's not some kind of dark secret. That is literally the point of a VC fund is to generate returns. And so I think we need to be realistic about that and accept that and acknowledge it and stop pretending that that is not the goal. There's nothing actually wrong with starting a company because you want to make some money. And there's nothing wrong just with be, starting an investment be fund because <laughs> just be honest about it. You know, like these things yeah, are tell us the truth. acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> It makes sense that you I, want to do that. Sure, I want to make money as well. I really like collecting Bob's Burgers action figures and money is what's going to pay for that. But I'm not out here pretending about it. You know, that's just not helpful. Yeah, so we've absolutely. got to stop falling into um, that con. I've got a friend and we are very aligned in our sort of belief systems. And we both know of a guy in the VC space. His name's Rain Ong. And Rain is this openly proud capitalist that just wants to make money, but he's honest about it. And it's very hard mm. to fault him for that. And, and my friend and I agree that we would much prefer a dirty, rotten capitalist that's honest about it than one that is pretending to lift humanity out of poverty and save the world whilst taxing it all the way through. You know, at Maslow, we talk about how the finance industry is the world's most extractive industry and nothing really matters in terms of changing that industry unless you change the underlying business model because it's the business model that is at, at odds with society. It is the business model that extracts from society to ship profit from all of us to the 5% of the world who own it is venture capital an extractive model that they just don't want to talk about. Is that the problem? It's certainly not as helpful as it wants to make out. I think there is a degree of um, delusion inside the industry as well as outside. So people who are working in VC, I think they actually do often delude themselves into believing that they are changing the world, that they are, these like philanthropic kind of people, that's how they see themselves. I don't know that it's necessarily extractive, like its goal is to give money, but I do think that the way that it impacts society is definitely not as positive as they make out to be. And I think if you really took a step back and measured the impact of venture capital funded companies over the last 20 years, there is a good chance that you'd be able to pretty safely say that they've done more harm than good from 
Facebook to X to God Theranos. <laughs> you know, like if we're, if we're looking at, at the sum total of what VC funds have contributed to the world, I don't know that we can say that it is entirely a positive contribution. It's interesting uh, that you say that maybe there's delusion involved from the VCs mm. that sit in offices with other VCs and have to put out content into the world and they have to market mm. positive spin. Maybe it's yeah. this self-preservation style of delusion about mm. the job they're going to every day. And that becomes this infectious thing that they all, you know, speak to, to drive this conversation, to drive the conferences and the pitch nights and this sense yeah. of community. It's all, we're all helping each other, but not mm. really. We're not. All we're doing is mm. trying to make money and that can be a pretty dirty thing in, mm. in today's world to put your hand up in public and say, Hey, we're here to make cash bucket loads of cash. And that's mm. our job. And that doesn't get interviews. It doesn't sell ticket no. pitch nights or, or get you accepted to South by Southwest. No, it doesn't. You have to say, Hey, there's all these problems and we're fixing them, mm. but mm. maybe they're not. Okay. All right. Now I'm not the journalist here. You are. So mm. I thought I better ask, do you have any questions of me and how I think we can solve some of the problems that exist in the world around us? I guess my first question is how are you going to do things differently in a system that is so incredibly broken? Like what is the plan? to do things differently here. Yeah. So part of this conversation has been the problem of sourcing funding for a venture that is all about systems change. Now we make the argument that no FinTech has changed the financial industry because no FinTech has changed the business model. It's an mm. industry that's built on companies that all depend on that business model to exist. So everything favors that, but the finance industry is an industry that overlays a system because it overlays that system. If that is an industry that is only owned by 5% of the population, we have a problem. We have to offer a, a healthy return and we have a profitable model, but if we don't cap the return on the upper end, then all we do is perpetuate the problem and change who owns this industry. So that's our first compromise. We cap our investors returns. The second one is we bring together products that wholesalers provide already to retailers all around the world in the financial services industry. And we bring it to our customer with no margin added on, because the moment you add margin on a financial product, you've got conflict. You, you, you're incentivized to sell the product. So we step away from selling and we say, you pay a flat fee to get into a virtual door like you would at Costco. And we stack up products that we have no incentive to market or, or, or influence which one you take. And that's a really different relationship that we have have with our customer. No other financial service provider has that relationship with their customer where the customer is paying them to bring them the best products they can. And look, we have to compromise in how we get to the best product in the end. In, in the early days, the best product is whatever we can buy from a wholesaler, less the, the margin that you would currently pay. So on insurance, that might be 20% cheaper. In the end, when we have re-educated a market and told humanity that the finance industry doesn't have to be owned and, and controlled by just a couple of people. And we've got the volume. We can start changing the way we put together financial products and Maslow will eventually become 95% customer owned. And so that's who we are going to build the products for just as at the moment, the industry is owned by 5% of humanity. And that's who the products benefit. We want to flip that on its head and say, we've got enough people now and we can bring them in and say, Hey, let's build products just for you. And 
What's the reaction to that been like in the TradFi industry? Like how are people taking that? Is it positive? Is it negative? I would break the industry down to two types of people. There are the people who are disenfranchised and they are broken into two groups as well. The first group is young people that have just finished uni and just entered into traditional finance as an industry. And they've realized that the values of the finance industry are very different from the values of broader society. And they get very uncomfortable. The other element is people who are on the tail end of their career in traditional finance and butted their heads against the conflict that exists in this industry, their entire career. People who were in those meetings where they said, hey, we can deliver this benefit to this customer if we do X, Y, and Z, and have had a manager say, no, we can't do that because that makes it less profitable for us. Hmm. And they've seen how the the industry is really, really extractive. And and they've seen that it it, it punishes those with the least by charging them the most. So we get those two groups of people that, that really hate what the finance industry is. It's a growing group of people and some of them are you know ex-bank ceos for example who just got so sick and and maybe they feel guilty maybe having benefited from this industry they want to give back you know everyone's got different motivations so they're the, the groups that really support what we're doing and they admit openly publicly as well as some privately that the finance industry is just fundamentally broken and needs to be fixed and then we have people who let's say in the middle of their career, in the middle of this industry, and they're making a lot of money out of it. And they don't think there's anything wrong with it. And, you know, I always make this argument that you've got rooms full of people designing and building products that none of them use. And so they don't think there's anything wrong with these products. You know, when you're charging someone 40% interest to borrow money, you're helping that person go backwards. And every time they borrow money, they're going further, further backwards. And, you know, we've got this industry that does that. And so there's people who have a conscience and who have seen how damaging it is. They're really supportive. But the people who are making the most money out of the industry, they don't think there's anything wrong with it. How do you change their minds? (laughs) We have to... Yeah, look, there are, there's a lot of data out there that supports our position beyond question, but as you know, not everything that we say and do as people is rational. And there's that quote, it's very hard to get someone to believe something that their wage depends on them not believing. And Mm. that rings true in the finance industry, but there's one extra layer of it that makes it even harder because by implication, if this is the largest industry in the world, and it is, it it now equates to 25% of global GDP. It makes more profit than the GDP of Italy. And it it does that by extracting from, from society, from all of us to benefit a few people. Now, if you're one of the people that benefits from that, if you work within this industry, that's a pretty hard thing to grapple with morally. And so their, their careers and their, and, and their salaries depend on them believing that this industry is absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with it. And their conscience requires them to believe that there's nothing wrong with it. So it can be very, very hard. And that's why we speak to most of the people that the industry doesn't benefit. And those are people show us enormous support. And that's why what we're doing has to be a groundswell up rather than a top-down change. How we get there without upsetting too many people along the way and having roadblocks thrown in front of us is another challenge. But, you know, we've got some plans around that as well. I'm excited to see how this progresses. You know, it's an unusual approach to a financial company. It's something that I haven't seen before. And in the world that that we're facing, the world of VC bullshit and finance nonsense. Okay, it's exciting for me and I want it to work. Put it that way.
<laughs> so do we very much. We went through a process over the last couple of years of speaking to organizations, companies, institutions that really loved how our narrative resonated with the customer base. Uh, and, you know, mm. they call it the customer base. I call it society because, you know, I have a healthcare mm. perspective and my healthcare perspective says that people are patients, not customers, you know, talking about that word before defining what investing means, defining what impact means. Well, if you define a, a person as a customer, that really changes how you see them. If you define them as a patient, which is my default to pretty much everyone I meet in my life, there's someone that you've got to show care to and help mm. move forward, help get ahead, then that changes the conversation you have with them. I think if we have a look at our partnership potential, we're limited in who we can partner with because if you have a, a business model that is entirely dependent on the status quo, on the finance industry being perfectly fine, there's nothing wrong with it whatsoever, and we don't need to change anything, then you have no incentive whatsoever to partner with a startup who believes that it all needs to change. And we believe it all needs to change because most people that are outside the industry believe that, and that's how they experience the finance industry. But it's taken us a long time to realize that there are actually quite a few partners that could benefit greatly from a partnership with us. So we have to have a, a banking partnership to go to the market, for example. And, you know, if you have a look at what UpBank did with Bendigo, UpBank was essentially a software company. And, you know, we are essentially a software startup. We're just in the finance mm. space. Um, UpBank did a partnership with Bendigo to allow them to offer bank accounts to a market that Bendigo's brand did not speak to, right? Now, what if we can find a partner that wants us to do that for the right reasons? And it just so happens that there are some really good examples in, in the Australian market and actually all around the world of organizations that are owned by their customers and are really big and really significant in terms of um, their resources as well as their credibility because they've been established in the market for a long time. And these organizations are really keen to ask this question of how do we deliver greater benefit to our customers? And they're actually asking one of my favorite questions that exists at the moment around what is social impact? What is improving customer value? And I, there are a number of organizations that are starting to to extend that question out, how do I extend or improve on my customer's experience of life, not just experience with me as a provider to them, but how do I improve on the society around them? And we're really interesting to those companies. So we'll likely do a banking partnership with a really large customer-owned bank that is now asking questions of, hang on a minute, we have to be beyond profit. We're already making money and that's fine, but our customers own us and we are committed to improving their lives. We can no longer do that unless we improve the society around them. That makes sense, honestly. Yeah. Uh, if I can finish with one question, if you could change one system that we use or one part of a system that you think would lead to the most significant change in where the world is headed, what would you change? What lever would you pull? Universal basic income. I'm a huge believer in a UBI. I think as we increasingly automate jobs, as AI comes into play, as tech advances, the only way that we're going to support a constantly growing population is if we have a universal basic income that applies to and is accessed by everyone that can fund us outside of the capitalist system. I'm a huge believer in this, and I don't see an alternative to it. As AI draws closer to affecting everything mm. around us.
how far away do you think a universal basic income is, given that most people have said it is inevitable? I don't think humanity can afford for it to be more than a decade away. I think if, if it takes longer than a decade, the amount of social unrest that is going to spill over will be incredibly dangerous, incredibly harmful for pretty much everyone in society and certainly for the people who are in power. Would you argue then that the coming economic inequalities present probably a greater emergency for humanity than climate? I think they go hand in hand. I think what we're looking at is the end game of a system that has treated every resource as infinite. And that end game is a joint cataclysm. It's a, it's an economic crisis. It's a climate crisis. It's everything blended into one. And I think separating these, these concepts out is harmful because they are so related, you know, pursuing infinite growth has a human cost and it has an environmental cost. And eventually we're going to have to pay those costs and that's what's coming. Absolutely. And it just leads to a further polarized yeah. political landscape that, that amplifies 100%. all of the yeah. problems. Yeah. Absolutely. We can't separate this stuff. It has to be addressed together. It's been described that we are experiencing a polycrisis, which is the convergence of four independently horrific crises. One of them being wealth inequality, one of them being climate, one of them being growing authoritarianism. If we have a look at who these problems all affect most, it's not the wealthy. And so it's a really interesting question about where this change is going to come from. But I definitely think it has to come from, you know, larger and larger groups of people within society that are not individually very powerful, but together can drive change that the people at the top uh, have no incentive to drive. I would agree with that. And that's it for today's episode. As always, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please remember that sharing it on social media with your thoughts is a really valuable way to support us. If you haven't already, please rate and review the show on your chosen podcast platform. These are the things that help us bring you the world's most impressive thinkers, and it helps us on our journey toward erasing financial inequality, one of humanity's greatest threats today.